Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Digital Euro Podcast, the podcast by the Digital Euro Association, a European think tank focusing on digital money and the different forms of the digital euro. My name is Conrad Kraft, Executive Director at the Digital Euro Association, and today I am happy to be joined by the members of our private Digital Euro Working Group. Their paper entitled Stable Coins, an Introduction and Recommendations for the European Union, covers topics such as stablecoin definitions and their unique selling points, design choices for stablecoins, the interactions between stablecoins and CBDCs, as well as touching on the legal framework governing stablecoins. The paper concludes with a few well-formulated and concise recommendations for policymakers to consider. To help us unpack this publication, I'm happy to be joined by the two chairs of the working groups, Oriol Kaudavir and Chris Ostrowski. Joining us too are working group members, Horst Tribelmeier, Javier Lavassier, and Luca Venini. It's great to have you all join me today. Welcome, everyone. To get things kicked off, it would be great to hear from our two chairs, Chris and Oriol. Can you perhaps give us a bit of a background and an overview of the private digital euro working group and perhaps touch on some of the key highlights or any personal takeaways that you've experienced while chairing this group for the past few months? Oriol, over to you. Thank you, Conrad. Well, I think, um, I mean, it's been great to be part of this group. Uh, this group, as, as you said before, it's just one of the two groups um, of the Digital Euro Association working on, on these papers. Now, the other one was the, um, the Public Digital Euro Working Group. Um, in our group, we tried to look at the, the whole idea of the private digital euro, no stable coins, how they are regulated, how they, they should be regulated now in, in the future. And I think, aside, um, I would say that from a personal perspective, aside from how much I learned by being in touch with my, my colleagues in writing this report, I would say that um, the timing has been has been perfect. No, not just because CBDCs and stable coins are a hot topic and um, all across the globe, but especially in Europe as well. But also because these last few months, since we started this group, many things have happened in this area. I mean, we started to work on this group in early February. You no, know? so uh, we're talking about uh, almost uh, seven months and a half ago. And, and this short period of time, I mean, many things have happened aside from. From, for example, the, the expansion of CBDCs. Now we've seen uh, in May, for example, the, the Terra Luna collapse, uh, the start of this crypto winter. We we are seeing now um, uh, Mika, you now in Europe, the, the European regulation. So uh, it's it's I think the time is perfect now for us to to publish this report, especially because this report doesn't only cover uh, certain uh, theoretical aspects, but as you said before, Conrad, because it also um, includes some practical recommendations. And I think that part is key, you know, because it's going to allow um, whoever reads this article, not just um, to learn perhaps more about this topic, but also to get some clear ideas or recommendations coming from us, from the whole uh, working group. Great. Excellent uh, recap, uh, Oriol. Of course, yes, starting in uh, February this year, 
quite a few developments took place um, within the greater digital currency um, market. And I think, of course, it was perfect timing. Chris, how about you? How, how was your experience uh, as part of this working group? Yes, it was quite a brave initiative for the Digital Euro Association to set this group up because stable coins are one of the areas which are much discussed and often shrouded in confusion and controversy. And that was only exacerbated in May when the DPEG event that many of us had feared occurred with the Terra Luna crash. And I think you can probably draw a line in the sand into sort of before and after that moment. You have before Terra Luna and after Terra Luna. So this paper, which was published in August, encapsulates the thinking in a very interesting way because we talk a lot about the promise of stable coins, and I think that's very valuable. Stable coins at the moment, as we know, are really used mainly as a cash-in, cash-out mechanism or a trading pair on exchanges for people who want to move from one cryptocurrency to the other. But the concept of a stable digital coin, a coin that is tied to fiat currencies that we know so well, holds so much promise. And it was very good to distill all of these elements piece by piece. We're going to hear about the definition first, and that's going to that's a very important piece of this because people define stable coins differently. It tends to mean a digital coin that is pegged to a fiat currency. And it's very good that we kind of try and distill that in the first part. The features and benefits are very interesting. And I find this fascinating. You know, what can you do with a stable coin that really will make a difference in, in, in the way people view digital currency and the way they view money? And then also the regulatory part is, is very important as well, because we're looking at what you regulate, you know, how you regulate the transparency of how the stablecoin works and how the it's measured and also the reserves themselves and how those are measured and it's very important that uh, there's as much light shone on these areas as possible as the European Union and others start regulating in this area so it was a very well timed paper it was quite an ambitious paper and I think it helped distill the issues in a way that's been that, that's uh, added a great contribution to the discussion. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris, for that quite uh, comprehensive, but uh, at the same time, succinct and accurate description of the, the private digital euro working group. So let's have a look at some of the sections and dive a little bit deeper into uh, some of the content of the paper. So the first section of the paper um, includes, uh, as you mentioned uh, earlier, Chris, uh, definitions and uh, their unique selling points. So just for the purpose of our listeners, uh, each section was uh, was crafted by a subgroup. And uh, today we have Horst Treibelmeier from um, the subgroup one, which uh, helped to com compile the first section, of which is stablecoins and their definitions and unique selling points. Um, Horst, could you perhaps give us a short summary of the key points from your chapter and uh, any recommendations or key takeaways, should there be any? Yes, sure, Conrad. Uh, I'll be happy to do that. It was really exciting for me to be part of this working group and I enjoyed all the discussions that we had. And now I'm going to briefly talk about the basics to make this uh, podcast self-contained. The first thing uh, that we needed to clarify in our group was what a stablecoin is in the first place. 
this is important since there are quite a few definitions out there, as was already mentioned, and it's always a good idea to make clear what you're talking about. And we refer to a stablecoin as a privately issued token that has value packed to an underlying asset or a basket of assets. I especially appreciate the definitions of the International Standardization Organization, which also includes the term asset. They define it as anything that has value to a stakeholder, which means that there are many things that can underlie stablecoin. To make things more specific, I give you an example of a very popular stablecoin, which is called Tether. The symbol is USDT and it's packed to the US dollar. So the idea of a stablecoin is if you own one USDT, it means that you own the equivalence of one US dollar. Uh, just an important side note, um, stablecoins are called stablecoins because they're packed. However, if the underlying asset loses value, then of course, in absolute terms, you're also losing value. To the best of my knowledge, the US inflation is currently slightly higher than 8%, which means that you uh, own a stable coin, you can keep your amount in US dollar in that case, but you are losing purchasing power. For many people all over the world, this is still the best option since the cryptocurrencies or other currencies are even more inflationary. In our report, we include the very popular money flower to outline four different properties of stable coins. First, they are digital, which means that they are not available in the form of paper currency, for example. Second, they are not public. In other words, they are not issued by a central bank. Third, they are peer-to-peer, -peer, so I can send you some payment in stablecoins without having to rely on an intermediary such as a bank. And uh, fourth, as I've already mentioned, they have a fixed exchange rate with an asset. Currently, the most important uh, stablecoins are pegged to the US dollar, but this does not have to be the case. In a previous episode of this podcast, you already discussed Eurocoin from Circle, uh, which is pegged to the Euro. It could be any other currency, or it could be gold, or a precious metal, a precious stone, a commodity, and we can be really creative here. An important question that we need to clarify is why I need stablecoins in the first place. And the major use cases are either store of value or medium of exchange which allows market participants to move in and out of cryptocurrencies without having to exchange their holdings into fiat money. It's also an easy way for peer-to-peer -peer payments. I, for example, brought a, bought a router a couple of months ago and the company wanted me to make the payment in a stablecoin, um, which was apparently easier for them. And stablecoins can also be used to operate within decentralized finance applications. And an important question is also how stablecoins are backed. So I'm not talking about pegging something to an asset, but rather how they are secured. And this can be done by holding fiat currency, ideally one US dollar for one stablecoin that is being issued. When we are talking about commodity-backed stablecoins, we need a custodian who holds the commodity. And stablecoins can also be backed by cryptocurrencies, in which case we need a higher amount as a backing uh, since cryptocurrencies are usually uh, very volatile. And finally, stablecoins can be also algorithmic, which means that there are no reserves and the value is managed by computer code. Of course, as was mentioned before, we have all witnessed the Terra Luna crash and there are now even discussions in the United States to ban algorithmic stablecoins for some years. And we have to see how this works out, but I personally still find the concept to be quite intriguing and I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming. In our report, we also investigate 
the relationship between stablecoins and commercial banks, and we conclude that there might be some competition. In the first place, stablecoins might be attractive for those who do not have access to the banking system or might want to exit it. They facilitate peer-to-peer transactions, uh, remove intermediaries, and allow access to decentralized finance. On the other hand, there might be some negative effects such as uh, tax avoidance, terrorism financing, and money laundering. We all know these topics. In the report, we also compare stablecoins with unpacked crypto assets and find that stablecoins are really important in terms of market capitalization and trading volume. Uh, I just checked the figures on coin market cap yesterday. When it comes to capitalization, Tether, USDT is third, USD coin from Circle is fourth, and Binance USD is seventh. And in terms of trading volume, Tether is even leading the list. Of course, the motivations for getting unpacked cryptocurrencies is quite different from getting stablecoins. With unpacked cryptocurrencies, for example, you can speculate since they are volatile, which is of course not the case for stablecoins. They are seen more like, as I mentioned before, a medium of exchange and store of value. When you look at the crypto market as a whole, they can have a stabilizing effect since users do not need to get out in case of turmoil. And there's also a complex relationship between stablecoins and central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Stablecoins are basically issued by private institutions, as I've mentioned before, but in case they are backed by central bank liabilities, a so-called synthetic CBDC can be created. This could have a negative effect on commercial banks since it might limit credit provision. In a nutshell, it all depends on who is backing the stablecoin. And we summarize our chapter by highlighting several unique selling propositions of stablecoins relative to CBDCs, existing commercial bank money, and unpacked cryptocurrencies. As I've already pointed out, stablecoins are digital native and allow to settle transactions without intermediaries at any time of the day or the week. Potentially, specific functions can be programmed on a distributed ledger. One example could be a loyalty program for which branded stablecoins are being used, and I've seen such examples already. Stablecoins can also offer an interesting means of financial inclusion, and they can have functions of fiat money, such as means of exchange and store of value. And they give stability to the cryptocurrency market and provide a safe haven in times of market volatility. And the recommendations of our introductory chapter are rather short. Most importantly, we recommend to precisely define what a stablecoin is and what different features it has. As I've mentioned before, there are quite a few ways in which they can be implemented, and it's really important not to mix them up since the various implementations can have different possibilities and properties. So that's all from my side. Conrad, I'm handing over back to you. Thank you, Horst, for that breakdown of the introductory chapter. How stablecoins are defined is, of course, essential to the framing of many subsequent matters, such as regulatory and legal frameworks, as well as education. The second chapter in the paper focused on design choices and outlined a few use cases for stablecoins. Oriel and Chris, could you give us a rundown of these designs and maybe some of the use cases presented in the paper? Yes, so basically, in Chapter 2, well, our group analyzed the design choices and features for stablecoins, starting with something uh, which uh, is uh, basic, no? What are the drivers of design choices and features? 
we all know that stable coins have the, the potential to revolutionize the international payment system, as, as we said before, you know, to bank and bank or bank to create new business opportunities. So um, while most stable coins uh, are mainly used as crypto exchanges, there is a possibility of uh, micropayment, of reducing transaction fees, of having a 24-7 availability, uh, as well as, as well as the possibility of, of easing the use of international transactions implying that stable coins uh, to some extent as our group said are here to stay so in this section what we tried to explore was um, some of the stable coin use cases uh, that uh, were uh, mentioned before no that drive their design uh, choices uh, for example retail payments were analyzed as well as online payments machine to machine payments paper use cross-border payments etc those are the four main use cases that were analyzed and whilst i'm not going to dig deeper on any of these there are some ideas that, that i think we need to to summarize in here like for example when it comes to retail um payments uh, we started by asking ourselves why should there be a need for a stable coin for retail payments when there are already dozens of electronic payment alternatives so uh, this is an often heard uh, objection when talking about uh, uh, stable coins uh, used for for payments uh, payment payment oriented stable coins um well, among many other differences the most important difference between stable coins and electronic payment alternatives is that the payment methods rely on the banking sector while stable coins do not need to this uh, which is what um, we we're talking about before as well when we were talking about peer-to-peer -peer payments leads to differences in availability and costs of payments we also analyzed, as I said before, online payments because stable coins offer opportunities for specific use cases, especially in online payments, where their purpose as means of payment could be harnessed with peer-to-peer micropayments and potential machine-to-machine -machine payments. And last but not least, we also looked at machine-to-machine -machine payments because in the future industry, Machine-to-machine -machine payments will require new innovative payment solutions and stable coins can as well play a role in those. We also looked at the case of um, paper use because due to the programming cap capability of stable coins, stable coins can also be used for conditional contracts in monetary transactions. And also, of course, for cross-border payments. I mean, we talk a lot about the potential use of CBDCs in cross-border payments. Uh, this is something that, that um, whenever we talk about CBDCs, we talk a lot. But there is, of course, a use case for stable coins to be used in cross-border payments. We all know that the current international payment system is complicated. It is expensive. It is lengthy. It is even slow. I mean, it is much faster than, than decades ago, but still, it is not fast, fast yet. According, for example, to the World Bank, uh, and we summarize this in our report as well, fees for international retail payments average 6%, which is actually quite a lot. So stable coins have also a role to play in that area. And in the second part of this chapter, we analyzed business models, starting with the idea of value proposition, because stable coins can either become a source of cost savings or part of a service which generates revenue. So in any case, though, due to, to stablecoins efficiency, programmability, flexibility, etc., stablecoins will most likely reduce costs associated with transactions. We also looked at risks because we all know that significant financial loss 
can occur if an individual purchases a stablecoin with them purportedly collateralized by fiat currency, while a stablecoin issuer does not keep their promise to hold enough collateral against that issued stablecoin. Uh, so, I mean, we all know there are risks behind stablecoins. I mean, we all mentioned before, for example, the case of Terra Luna, and then there are many more ideas to add to this. So we tried to summarize some of these risks as well, and we ended with a very um, well, hot topic as well, which is that of privacy. Um, whenever we talk, for example, about CBDCs or the future digital euro, I know that privacy is one of the top concerns. And of course, the idea of privacy also comes when we discuss stablecoins. Uh, according to a 20, 2021 European Central Bank survey, privacy was a top two feature of a prospective digital euro for 58% of respondents, which is a lot. However, a more recent 2022 publication by the ECB on privacy options claims that user anonymity is not desirable, is not a desirable feature. And it also claims that the euro system should only be able to see the minimum transaction data required to validate digital euro payments. So this applies to digital euro, no? but we also try to look on how this idea would be applied to stable coins. And well, that pretty much summarizes this, this chapter. Um, over to you, Conrad. Thank you, Oriol. Chris, uh, with regards to this chapter, do you perhaps have anything to add? There are some recommendations at the end of the paper which apply to the features and design elements of this report, which I think are quite interesting. I think it's important that regulators and policymakers look to the end users and the end use cases when they're seeking to make regulation. It's very important to make sure that the stable coins are safe and are usable, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But it's also important to make sure that a culture of innovation and greater development is being fostered when creating any sort of uh, regulatory regime or policy decision. And in particular, if we really get into the details of this, the machine-to-machine -machine payments, the micro-payments, and the cross-border payments are things where, with the right sort of um, policy-making approach, you can find a place that stablecoins can do things that the current system doesn't do so well. And there are a number of, of, of examples, I won't repeat them again, but certainly just to take one micro-payments, if you wanted to read an article and spend a few pennies or a few cents just to read that article rather than paying for the subscription, then this is the type of thing that a programmable um, stablecoin could do. And that should be encouraged and fostered in the policy making approach. So that's one recommendation that we have in mind, really looking at the use cases and seeing how the greater innovation can be can be kept. Further to that, I mean, when it comes to design and you know, the, the, the features in design of a stablecoin. I know that our, our colleague Luke is going to talk a little bit about the regulation later, but certainly how the stablecoin is designed will matter a great deal when one considers what it is backed by and how transparent the reserves are. And this, I think, is a very important point. I think regulators are used to looking at um, you know reserve buffers, particularly when dealing with banks, and they're used to uh, doing all sorts of stress tests and things like this. But this is slightly different. It's important to keep looking at those things, but also to recognize that it's, this is quite a different instrument where you've got a group of or a, a single or a group of assets that are underlying a stable coin. And how that's measured and how transparent that is, is very important. So focusing on the transparency rather than just this is a regulated entity, 
this is not a regulated entity um, is important. So you, you kind of have to go beyond the current thinking regarding you know, what's required for regulated institutions at the moment and look at how transparent the stablecoin is and what the assets are. And I think if that's the approach, then that would be quite useful in terms of the sort of policy thinking around the features and design of stablecoins in the future. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Indeed, the design considerations are key uh, to the new business models that are proposed and, of course, exciting new business models emerging from the, the realm of stablecoins. Moving on to the third chapter, uh, which was interactions between stablecoins and CBDCs. This is often brought up when the discussion of uh, stablecoins and, and CBDCs as they are pitted against each other, but often people feeling like one uh, would replace the other. I wonder if, if it's that simple, but we have Javier here to uh, unpack this perhaps and uh, touch on what was um, crafted in uh, chapter three, which is entitled um, Stablecoins and their interactions with CBDCs. Uh, over to you, Javier. Thank you very much, Conrad. Um, so I see a lot of points have been already mentioned, interesting, but uh, so first to, to say that it's been a very delightful process to be uh, discussing and in particularly in this subgroup where we had people with different backgrounds. So people representing stablecoins, technology providers, and also the public sector. So we could have the different views in, in the project. And in, indeed, there is um, a potential for interaction between CBDC and stablecoin. But first, or, or first analysis is to say that it is very likely that the two will have to cohabitate. And I think at the beginning of some uh, of the CBDC projects, there has been some expectation to uh, substitute maybe uh, CBDC to some of um, uh, the crypto ecosystem. But I think now it's, it's very established that there are different purposes, different uh, usage, and there is an industry large enough that the two are likely to cohabitate. It's also likely on the other side that a digital euro will be issued, in which form it's uh, still up in the air. But, um, so we can expect the two to, to, have, to exist. Another question is how much there are going to be some competition between the two as payment instrument, as reserves, but also some synergies. And we see already that in the different topics for which a CBDC could be useful, there is uh, also equivalent stablecoin that provides some of those functionalities. Just to take two examples is one is just as a pure payment. So imagining a digital euro purely as, as a payment instrument, uh, there is already some um, actors that are on, on the verge between uh, e-money provider and a stablecoin. One example of this is uh, Monarium that complies with the EU uh, e-money regulation, so this destined to provide a, um, a monetary instrument for payments. But at the same time, it is issued on a blockchain and it can interact with the blockchain ecosystem. So we see already this kind of uh, payment-oriented stablecoin going a bit beyond what was mentioned before, the main usage currently, which is more as a trading arbitrage and uh, exit mechanism. And the other case where we see uh, stablecoin that are 
providing an interesting um, new functionality is in the context of financial market infrastructures. So some financial market infrastructures are looking at stablecoins as a way to have a cash leg for providing, for instance, delivery versus payments of a financial instrument against um, money. And as they are mostly private, different private platforms, they are interested in having uh, some sort of instrument and some of them are looking into different stablecoins or also experimenting with a potential uh, digital euro. And we have seen such experiment connected in Europe, also with Switzerland and, and so all those kind of options. So in all those scenarios where the digital euro is considered, there are stablecoin alternatives uh, being considered. Um, and as well, I was mentioned by Chris, the, the most important question, of course, is um, the safety of this. And the safety is different dimension. There is an operational safety and there is a reserve uh, aspect of safety. And our, our reasoning is to say, how can we take the best of both, both worlds and have, um, as was mentioned, the, the innovative capabilities, but at the same time, provide all the guarantees there is. One of the areas we found that was particularly interesting uh, is the 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 verge of of the two so the a stable coin that is backed by central bank money what was mentioned as a synthetic cbdc in, in the end there are different ways it could be done you could be using existing uh, rtgs system and just opening the current target to a different e-money provider for instance could be just a way to create this synthetic cbdc but the digital euro could be also a vector for this. So you can imagine that digital, digital euro uh, circulates in the economy and it's directly um, uh, used by some actors to issue a new instrument backed by this digital euro. And then you would have a perfect guarantee uh, of uh, the financial guarantee that provides the digital euro and the payment instrument has different uh, capabilities. Um, so definitely this is an area we saw interesting. So in terms of recommendation you know, section, uh, I think it goes to three... Um, main areas. The first one is to say that there needs to be solution for providing a solid backing of stablecoin. And one way is to regulate and ask a lot of requirements, which is already what does the e-money directive, for instance. But one other way is to uh, uh, foster the capabilities of these private actors and, and this idea of providing new ways for uh, private actors to guarantee the reserve. And um, providing this access to a TGS or a digital euro as a reserve seems a fantastic opportunity. The second uh, main recommendation is the question of interoperability. Um, interoperability of a digital euro and stablecoin would facilitate the use of both, would enhance the network effect of both, would facilitate the adoption of euro in different areas and different situations. And so I think that's ultimately the responsibility of the digital euro project to um, uh, look at how the the two will cohabitate and, and can be exchanged one to the other. So it can mean exchange the digital euro against a stablecoin, but it can mean also to exchange the stablecoin with other form of money and how that can be facilitated. And also uh, the international exchange of it. So should how it would be easy to exchange um, different euro stablecoin to other currencies and how what can be done to facilitate this. The third main recommendation is the question of uh, creating a common payment regime. Currently, if you try to pay with a stablecoin, you enter in a totally different uh, world of uh, regulation than if you try to pay with um, a regular um, payment instrument, such as a card. 
And it is a lot of risk for the different actors involved, even for the merchant. It, 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 um, so what we think is there should be similar guarantees that are provided for um, the users in terms of privacy, in terms of security, for the merchants in terms of guarantee of the payments. But all of these being um, uh, common enough to, to be as easy for a merchant to accept a payment in the different forms and to facilitate the adoption of those different options. Thank you, Javier. Definitely a very important topic, and this was well articulated in the chapter. The final chapter touched on the legal framework. Uh, it was entitled Outlining a Legal Framework for Stablecoins and provided some very important recommendations um, for policymakers to consider uh, around the regulatory framework of stablecoins and uh, related topics. Luca, could you perhaps unpack this for us and uh, give us a good overview of what the, the chapter entails? Thank you, Conrad. Uh, yes, the, the area that I coordinated was basically focusing on, first of all, uh, defining what is the current uh, European Union legal framework which is applicable, what should be the principle uh, for uh, new developments in this legal framework, uh, what are the specific areas where the paper recommends uh, further legislation, and finally, what are the main non-regulatory areas where public and private action is recommended. Uh, regarding the existing legal framework, uh, certainly the basis has been identified not only obviously in MICA, the Markets and Crypto Asset Directive, which is very close of, to, to being published in the next few weeks, but also the, the, the directive uh, uh, MIFID II on, on, uh, on investments uh, that uh, has, has been around for a few years, and especially uh, the anti-money laundering directive in its fifth version. Those three pieces of um, legislation are the basis on which to build uh, all what is needed, especially because of the they define the, the, the pillars in terms of what is a financial asset, what is a crypto asset, what are the main principles of protection or investment uh, on definition of uh, intermediaries obligations. Um, on that existing legal framework, uh, everybody thinks, including the regulator, of course, uh, that some more has to be built. No, no one ever thought that MICA was the final uh, uh, directive that should cover everything. It was uh, uh, certainly a brave uh, first start that would be probably a benchmark uh, uh, worldwide in terms of crypto asset regulation, but it's certainly the first piece of legislation in a completely new uh, area. The, the, the key principles uh, for further development that have been identified are, first of all, uh, an awareness of the mutual dependency between public digital euro regulation and private digital euro regulation. Because clearly we are talking about 
two very different assets, digital euro uh, issued by a central bank, obviously would be something very different from a private digital euro. Nevertheless, in the eyes of the users in Europe and outside, they will look as two very similar assets that probably would need to have a perceived equivalence in terms of value. And if this is not the case, more problems could arise. Uh, and in order to ensure that this equivalence is perceived, there, the two pieces of regulation on public and digital users need to be done with a strong awareness of the mutual dependency in order to avoid the regulatory arbitrage and also to fight on to, to prevent possible situation of contamination of bad reputation from one asset to the other. Please consider that when you can create a, 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 a digital currency in any country, the users will consider this as a currency. And the, the main collateral, even more important than the true collateral, is the general trust in the in the currency, and 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 that trust depends a lot on the type of regulatory framework which is imposed on both parts, on the private part and on the public part. The the second principle that was identified is to ensure an internationally coordinated approach, especially for cross border. Uh, digital payments, clearly you needed to have an interoperability between different uh, digital assets that have been uh, defined in different uh, legislations. And therefore, it's not enough to have a legislation in, in Europe. We need to have also legislation in the other country uh, uh, where the payment is directed or where the payment was originated. And these legislations need to be consistent in their main principles. Otherwise, this is not going to work. The Financial Stability Board, Stability Board issued last year general principle for global stake coins. And certainly, these need to be applied, but also general rules of interoperability between uh, uh, private stable coins and also between private and public stable coins and also between public stable coins need to be defined if cross-border payments uh, uh, need, uh, in order to allow cross-border payment to, to work properly. And let's also not underestimate the, the, the need of a harmonization on the tax side, because having completely different tax treatment and different legislation, again, is going to create a tax arbitrage, which is nothing wrong in principle, but could create issues uh, in the early stage of the creation of a private stable coin. Then the three areas of specific enhancement of the EU regulation were identified, first of all, in the need to extend the protection of non-professional investors uh, that was defined in MIFID to investment in crypto assets. So a private person, a consumer, needs to be to have the same protection 
uh, when investing in inverted commas in a crypto asset that he has today in making in any other investment in, in a regulated market within the EU. Then uh, the existing payment service directive that uh, disciplines the, 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 the obligations of the payment provider within EU needs to be extended to payments in crypto assets in order to ensure that there is no degradation of rights of users when shifting from a fiat currency to a cryptocurrency. And finally, the existing regulations of 528 uh, that has created the discipline for the conversion between one currency and another uh, in, in, in payments within Europe needs also to be extended to crypto assets. A conversion is an area that must not be underestimated. The lack of uh, disciplines and global regulation in conversion is one of the current key issues in uh, cross-border payments. And if something is not done also in the crypto asset area, the risk is that we are go going to create in the crypto asset world exactly the same issues of lack of transparency and, and lack of uh, uh, supervision that today we have in the normal cross-border payments. Finally, the two, the two non-regulatory areas where the, the working group has identified uh, uh, the need of, for action uh, were, uh, were one on the public side. And on the public side, we, we felt the need to organize and plan public education programs. Uh, uh, as the main asset of a currency is trust, you cannot have trust if you do not know what you are buying. So it is extremely important at public level that very well-designed uh, programs, educational programs, are set up in order to explain to consumers, but also to businesses, to corporates, what is a crypto asset, what is the public and what is the private crypto asset, what are the opportunities, what are the risks, and what are the rules of protection that all the actors uh, can, can, uh, can rely on. And the, the final recommendation of action is on the private sector, so when a new industry is created, it is very important that also private actors feel responsible to create a proper and fair communication and marketing communication about the, the, the different assets in order to ensure that everybody tells the same story about the opportunity and also the risk and also the user rights uh, around the crypto asset and around the, a private digital world. Thank you, Luca. Um, indeed, a sound collaboratively developed legal framework is key to realizing the full potential of stablecoins uh, in a way that, of course, does not uh, jeopardize financial stability and protects users. Uh, congratulations to everyone involved in producing this paper. It's uh, certainly been a significant contribution to the stablecoin literature, and I think it's going to benefit many in their journey to understanding digital currencies and stable coins in particular. And with that said, we are at the end of our podcast episode. Thank you to our working group members who joined today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed it. 
reach out to the Digital Euro Association via Twitter, LinkedIn, and our website to stay up to date with the latest news and discussions around CBDCs and stablecoins worldwide. Be sure to tune in next time and join us in the quest to shape the future of digital money. Goodbye.